When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. So this installment is another appendix to the main show, appendices being episodes that don't fall in line with the primary narrative, but still offer information I think the audience will enjoy. That could be information that I couldn't find a good place to insert, something I forgot, or something like this, an interview with an author. In this episode, I interview Stephen Robinson about his new book, Panzer Commander Hermann Balk, Germany's Master Tactician. Panzer Commander is a very well-structured and informative book, providing incredible detail without getting bogged down, making it a fascinating but relatively easy read. Something the author does that I found particularly compelling was including excerpts from Herman Balk's diary in the narrative to provide insight into what the man himself was thinking. For a little background before we begin the interview, Herman Balk began the war as a colonel in command of an infantry regiment in France. He was quickly recognized for his superior tactical ability. From there, he fought in the Greek campaign, where he performed admirably as well. After that, he spent some time on the German army staff, before being transferred to the east. In our narrative, Balk is still on staff, but we're going to jump ahead of the podcast a little bit to talk about his campaigns in Russia. Okay, I think that's enough from me. Let's hear from Stephen Robinson himself in Appendix B. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? So uh, to get started, uh, first thing, um, if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how you became interested in uh, the subject of Hermann Balk as a, uh, a leader. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. So I've been a civilian anal- analyst in the Australian Department of Defence for a while and 15 years in the Australian Army Reserve, and I've started to write military history books in my spare time. And Herman Bulk is my second book. And how I got interested in Herman is a interesting story. I was reading a very excellent book on the United States military after Vietnam, after this downward spiral when morale was plummeting and the force was unsure of itself. And there was a reference to a former Panzer commander, Herman Bulk, who was a consultant 
to the U.S. military in the 70s and the 80s. And I just thought that was a very interesting thing to happen. And then I started seeing obscure references to him in U.S. military journals, in military review, in the Marine Corps Gazette. And I realized he had kind of a kind of a cult following and was heavily, heavily respected. And then in 2015, um, Herman Bock's memoirs was published in English for the first time. And that was really when I got interested and could see that there was a story to tell. How would you describe the central thesis of your book then? So the central thesis is looking at Herman Bock from the point of view of tactical leadership. So the focus is looking at the early years of World War II, where he's a regimental commander and then a divisional commander before he goes to higher level higher levels of leadership at the operational level. So the focus is really the French campaign, where he's a regimental commander with a motorized infantry regiment, then the Greek campaign, where he's now a panzer commander with a panzer regiment, and the Stalingrad campaign, where he's got a panzer division. And so I really focus on those three core campaigns. Yeah, and I think you do actually tell a, a present an interesting narrative through the through the lens of those three campaigns in that in in the French campaign he's really first initially developing the concept of the Kampfruge, what we'd probably call a task force today of a temporary organization combined arms organization. Then as you move you move into the Greek campaign, he's becoming more more bold in his tactics with combined arm tactics, but also pushing through um, rougher terrain and against more difficult odds, and then uh, from there he progresses into the uh, Eastern Front when his tactics have become incredibly bold, incre- bold flanking maneuvers, uh, long force marches overnight to surprise the enemy. Um, was that something you were conscious of as you were writing the book, or did, was that a thesis that you sort of developed over time? Can you just speak to that his development as a tactical commander? Yeah, those elements are very correct, and um, while researching it, those points became more and more re- reinforced. So I became more aware of his central importance in creating the modern battle group, the modern task force, the modern combined arms team, and how he very much was a pioneer in, in these developments. So, for example, in the French campaign, his infantry regiment was very much at the tip of the German spear, crossing the Meuse River on the 13th of May, which was really the critical moment of the French campaign. And so his soldiers, his um, his um, three battalions in his regiment, crossed the river, established a bridgehead, but they didn't have tank support because the tanks were being held back for the operational breakthrough, which was supposed to happen later. And their French attacked the next day and almost, almost overran the bridgehead. It was just the timely arrival of some anti-tank guns and some panzers that had started to cross the bridge a day later that the Germans were able to set up anti-tank defences literally within minutes before the French arrived that, that just held the bridgehead in the nick of time. So from there, Bob realised that we need a bit more of a flexible approach here. We can actually get away from having rigid infantry regiments and rigid panzer regiments and just mix it up. Um, and from there, 
we started experimenting with task force with just the right amount of capabilities you need to achieve a mission, keeping things flexible. And from there, in Greece, these ideas are really given free reign and they would have what is recognisable in today's terms as a combined arms force. Yeah, and that, uh, I think, brings us back to uh, another central theme of this book, which is the concept of mission command, in which Volk, unlike his adversaries, oftentimes will be at the decisive point of the battle in order to in order to issue commands that are both relevant and timely, unlike his opponents who were generally fighting from re- more rearward command posts. Absolutely, and, and this is a very critical point. So to really understand how Volk practice what we call mission command today, um, we need to take a step back and, and consider his father, Wilhelm Balk, who was a World War I German general. And the Balks came from an aristocratic background, but they were very socially progressive for their day. So we, we would call them liberals. And from there, his father taught him, you know, that his, that his soldiers are men, they're people, they're no different than us and to really understand them as humans and to lead them with a huge sense of justice. So from there, Bob really got to know his men, to live among them, eat the same food that they eat, got to see this a class distinction between enlisted and officers, and to really understand their psychology and to really rule them with justice. So he, he understood what they were capable of and not capable of. So when it comes to actually commanding, you're very correct. He would be at the far... In, in front as possible at the decisive point, being able to influence events very quickly. When you can see the in the French campaign, the French regimental commanders were about four kilometres behind the lines in their command post. The division commanders were eight kilometres back, very isolated and not having a good sense of reality of, about what is actually going on. So Bolt would issue very quick orders, mostly verbal, in person or over the radio, and, and and he could step back and just allow the soldiers to implement them, their plans and would resist the temptation to micromanage them, even when they were executing plans differently than he would have. Yeah, and you definitely drive home that point in, in the text, um, this, uh, this concept of shared hardship and... Uh, delivering orders at the front, at the decisive point, but without uh, getting too down into the weeds, you could say, just giving his commanders his intent, but not giving them the specifics of what to do, leaving them the enough leeway to make their own decisions. Yeah, that is absolutely correct, but there is an important sort of point to qualify. His preferred method was certainly mission command, not getting into the micromanagement, giving a direction allowing the soldiers to implement it as they will. But because he had such good forward presence, there were occasions when he would jump in and take over. Rare occasions, but it was balanced by a more forward presence where there were critical moments when mission command was starting to unravel and he would come, take over, and and lead the troops forward. So after he crossed the Meuse River in France, for example... Um, the soldiers established a beach, uh, a bridgehead over the river, captured the French forts, and were ready to sort of call it a day. Bolk insisted on 
we need to advance another 10 kilometers into the French rear to really establish a breakthrough. And the soldiers really had to be pushed to make that happen. They were complaining and, and, um, and were insisting that that would be a tactical disaster and we'll all be killed. But Bolt was there. I'm, I'm with you. We're going another 10 kilometers. He really used his force of his personnel to drive that through. There was another incident a few days later that were, that were at a French village and the soldiers were tired. The officers were tired. They were, they were considered that we'll just have a night's sleep and attack the village in the morning. And Bulk was, well, I'll just take the village by myself and started walking towards the village. Then one by one, the soldiers jumped up and started attacking. Um, so we can see that he knew when to jump in and override mission command when he realized his soldiers were capable of more than they knew themselves. He did have a sense of uh, shared hardship with the soldiers and understood their the difficulty of a soldier's life, especially in a large-scale maneuver war where you're marching for days at the time. But at the same time, he also, you describe him as being somewhat um, maybe inured or cold-hearted towards having an emotional response to that knowledge because he knew that their lives depended on him making the right operational or strategic or tactical decision for them to live regardless of their personal comfort. Um, can you speak to his, the way he made those decisions or how he would rationalize his decisions? Absolutely. There's a certain paradox to his character. As forementioned, he was quite liberal for his day and did genuinely care about his soldiers and did have a strong sense of justice, but his personality was quite reserved, quite insular, um, quite repressed. So often he was in his own mind, in his own world, he was very interested in history and art and culture and would be reading these wonderfully wonderful books from European literature on the campaign and was often in his own little world, a bit detached from what was going on. And I think this combination of sort of justice and detachment allowed him to make command decisions that would come across as a bit cold because he wasn't overly emotionally invested in what was going on. And, and indeed, during the Russian winter campaign, when Hitler sacked Guderian, um, Bolk was writing in his journal that that's understandable because Guderian is you know, too close to the troops. He allows their emotions to influence him too much, and that gets in the way of his command decisions. So clearly he was had a sense of justice, but he was also detached enough to make command decisions based upon the bigger picture. And he, he had sentiment, but he could control it. During the Greek campaign, it seems as though the Anzac forces and the British regular forces actually had a very strong defensive position to defend, defend from, from the slopes of Mount Olympus to the Aegean Sea, yet somehow Bulk was able to push them back in day after day, all the way back down to Athens, with actually not a very superior force. How, how was he able to do that? Um, yeah, firstly, you're quite correct. The Greek campaign um, through terrain alone gives the defender all the natural advantages of you have very narrow mountain passes, very poor roads. It's not open tank country. Um, there's only a 
certain channels and an attack can advance through that are very predictable. So from the very beginning, the defenders have all the advantages, and the British Commonwealth soldiers were well equipped with artillery, anti-tank guns, mines, minor armoured support, certainly not enough. That was one of their deficiencies. But nevertheless, their um, ability to defend mountain passes gave them the clear tactical advantage. Um, so what happened in how Bulk was able to overcome these obstacles was two essential points. Firstly, combined arm flexibility. So when the Germans were advancing through these Greek roads in these horrible mountain passes, um, they were just the right balance of forces he needed. So a relatively small number of tanks, um, a certain amount of infantry, the, the support of specialist infantry such as motorcycle troops and, and cycle troops even, and just enough engineers and artillery to all function to overcome the terrain difficulties. So that gave Bulk an edge over the Commonwealth forces that were fighting very much as rigid infantry battalions in a World War One kind of way. Secondly, Bulk understood the terrain better than the Allies. He was an Alpine soldier in World War One. He had fought in the Romanian Alps. He had fought in the Italian Alps. He understood mountain warfare better. So when the British in the first battle at Platamon Ridge, considered the entire area unsuitable to tanks, so the commander was allocated no anti-tank guns. Um, Bok disagreed and actually got tanks moving through those mountains. Um, and secondly, um, Bok realised that the Allied flanks were vulnerable because the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders considered a lot of the mountains impassable to infantry in the sense that if if they could climb mountains and everything, but they would probably be too tired to attack in a meaningful way, so they were vulnerable on the flanks. So Bulk knew better through experience. So there's a critical moment when he was fighting the New Zealanders on Platamon Ridge, when he ordered motorcycle soldiers to leave their motorcycles behind and gave them missions to flank through the mountains that normally you'd only allocate to mountain troops that were properly trained to do that. But Bulk realised these men were capable of it and they were complaining, they didn't like it, but he ordered them forward, and they actually succeeded. So he was able to surprise the Allies by overcoming terrain difficulties that the Allies had considered to be too hard. So with the Greek campaign, we can also see a clear difference between um, Bolt's command style and the Allied command style, which is very much... Um, a modern style versus a World War One style. So in the Greek campaign, Bulk was always very close to the front line. He would issue simple verbal orders and would be witnessing the assaults, encouraging them forward, while the Australian and New Zealand battalion commanders very expertly used what resources they had to set up quite well-placed defensive positions. You certainly wouldn't be faulting them on how they deployed their forces, but then set up their battalion headquarters and connected everything with fuel telephone wire. So once the battles actually started, Bulk was able to influence the direction of the battles, simple verbal orders at the front, where the Allied commanders were trying to figure out what was actually going on through field telephones, and really stopped influencing the battles once they started. So 
the company commanders were very much fighting the battles on their own, right down to platoon level, without the battalion commander really being able to impose their will on what was going on. So we see lost opportunities where battalion reserves could have counterattacked or reinforced threatened sectors um, simply through uh, over-reliance on telephone wire, which completely disconnected them from the reality of what was actually happening. Right. Yeah, I think several times in the book you put forth examples of times when allied battalion commanders or uh, regimental commanders literally didn't know what was happening on the battlefield. Whereas Bulk, who, because he was at the decisive point, the Schwerpunkt, was able to immediately make adjustments and and drive his forces home. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And we see with the New Zealand battalion commander who independently fought Bulk a first time, put up a reasonable a reasonable fight before before his forces had to withdraw to Tempe Gorge. And then they established a new defensive position and were prepared to fight Bulk all over again. But by this time, the battalion commander psychologically was defeated in his own mind. So this time, before Bulk attacked, he delegate he knew it was a fighting withdrawal. They weren't intending to stay there forever, but they just needed to hold off the Germans long enough to allow the rest of the Allies to withdraw. Um, so this time, the battalion commander was um, had given up beforehand almost, and 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 authorized his company commanders to independently withdraw to at their own discretion. And so what happened, quite predictably was as soon as, um, as soon as the company commanders got panicked by the sudden appearance of German tanks from, from the other side of the river, because Bulk was able to cross the Pinos River with just enough tanks to sort of launch an attack where the Allies considered there was no crossing point. So the New Zealanders were very much surprised to see armour. One by one, the company commanders independently started to withdraw in accordance with their orders, giving them that discretion. So again, we can see that by the second time the New Zealand battalion commander had fought Bulk, he'd already given up. He was already outclassed. Yeah, that's definitely another uh, trait you can see in Bulk through through the text, is that he was not a risk-averse commander at all. He was willing, like you just stated, in the river crossing. He did lose a couple tanks in the river crossing, but in the end, um, it was worth it because he was able to uh, bring those tanks to bear against the Anzac forces on the on the far side. Absolutely correct, and you can see there that audacity that would get a fuller expression on, on the Eastern Front, where where the scale of the conflict suddenly changes. So in in Greece, where there the we're seeing battles with essentially the advanced guard of Panzer divisions with a small number of tanks maybe 5 to 20 at different times, small numbers of infantry, to suddenly epic-scale battles where the Russians have hundreds or thousands of tanks at any one time, and the need for audacity to win is even more strong, considering the numerical odds he was opposed to. Right, yeah, so, I mean, uh, we might as well move on to the Eastern Front then, where uh, his his tactics do become incredibly audacious, where he's performing those night marches, moving long distances and hitting Russians in places where they just 
they didn't expect to see Germans, and they would do it first thing in the morning. That is quite right. So um, for context, so Balk commanded the 11th Panzer Division in 1942 that during the case blue offensive initially was protecting the left flank of the German advance as it moved towards Stalingrad. Then when the winter set in and the Russians counterattacked and the 6th Army was surrounded in Stalingrad, the 11th Panzer Division was just outside that pocket, so was not surrounded and was supposed to be a relief force attacking and to save the 6th Army in Stalingrad. However, along the Chai River, the, the Russians launched a whole series of offensives to disrupt that possibility from happening, and the 11th Panzer Division effectively becomes a fire brigade desperately trying to hold that front line. And so Bulk was able to, one by one, knock out the Russian thrusts by essentially knowing when the Russians were pausing between phases of operation and then hitting them first thing in the morning just before they were about to launch their new phase. So in the first example, at State Farm 79, the Russian armoured force had um, established a breakthrough and had captured an important objective and was put into a defensive position to resume the attack the next day. Meanwhile, Bog's division um, did a night march and came to a position from a flank the Russians were not expecting, and when the Russians were simply preparing to attack the next day, suddenly the panzers would appear out of nowhere and Bog overran and annihilated effectively an entire core of Soviet tanks. And so Bog... One of his maxims to come out of this was night marches saves blood, and if his soldiers were complaining, would you rather march or bleed? Now, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that in one point in the uh, in the text, you indicate that Balk actually thought that Hitler's directive to not surrender an inch of ground was actually a wise decision, despite the fact that um, generally... A lot of people consider that to have been a mistake, that to allow the Wehrmacht to retreat somewhat and uh, collect itself may have been the better decision overall. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so Balkan, his memoir is very, very different to the memoirs we we got immediately after the war, such as Guderian's Panzer Leader and Manstein's Lost Victories. And, and to understand a bit of context, in those two memoirs, Guderian and Manstein are constantly complaining that every time they lose a battle, it's because Hitler imposed impossible interference on them, which really explains away their defeat. And that's kind of a post-war way German generals were able to to salvage their reputations and inflate their own reputations by exaggerating the extent to which they were being micromanaged by Hitler. So Bolg wrote his memoirs much, much later. He initially um, lived a very obscure life after World War II, and it wasn't until his former chief of staff, von Mellenthin, started to consult with the American military after Vietnam that Bulk was finally convinced to come out of the woodwork and actually to start to discuss his experiences. And so Bulk only started writing his memoirs in the late. 70s was published originally in German early 80s. But how he 
growing theme of mountains and their minds was also different because during the war, he had a very detailed journal of day-to-day activities, so he had a very good primary source that he wrote himself and was able to rely upon a much um, better information than sheer memory. And secondly, Volk refused to blame Hitler for every time something went wrong. So in his memoirs, he speaks out against other German generals who claim impossible interference and makes counterclaims that Hitler never really got in the way of telling me how to do things. He never micromanaged me. He, he trusted me and allowed me to do whatever I saw fit. So in a sense, his memoirs are a lot more honest and he blames his mistakes purely upon himself and takes responsibility for those mistakes. Um, so from that point of view, um, Bolks um, never um, followed his normal narrative that the German generals have where Hitler is blamed for everything. Now, if we take that analysis to the Stalingrad campaign, Bolk has two more controversial views compared to the other German memoirs. First, he considered a breakout attempt by the Sixth Army, considering the fuel situation and the Russian winter and the forces surrounding the city would have been a disaster. He did not think militarily it would have been possible to do so. And secondly, there's a bigger operational picture that Bulk um, doesn't gloss over. And it's very honest about that the Russians surrounding Stalingrad surrounded a huge pocket of German soldiers and had enormous siege forces to keep the Stalingrad pocket intact. But if you move back and see a bigger operational picture, the Germans also had Army Group A in the Caucasus, which was a much, much, much larger force than 6th Army in Stalingrad. So if the Germans pulled back 6th Army, if that was actually possible to do so, the Russians would have been able to take Rostov on the Don, then Army Group A would have been cut off. So the way Bulk explains it, um, the Germans had a choice by 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 Stalin by holding by the Sixth Army holding Stalingrad, keeping the Russian siege forces fixed. This enabled a larger withdrawal of Army Group A. So it's a question of sacrificing a smaller army to save a larger army, and that was the dilemma that the Germans were facing. So the other German generals, Manstein and Guderian, gloss over that point in their memoirs, while Bulk fully acknowledges the nightmare scenario where Sixth Army's destruction is actually saving Army Group A. Right, and I think towards the end of the book, you actually do speak to um, how the German army in several of its campaigns had overextended itself, and that I think is something that that higher German leadership didn't really want to come to terms with even after the war. Absolutely. So so Bulk um, is very honest about how he initially underestimated the Russians and underestimated their tactical, operational, and strategic thinking. But during the Russian campaign, he starts to learn and realizes that he's underestimated his opponent. So, so from that analysis... 
and when he looks at the disaster of the Stalingrad campaign as a whole, um, he puts the collective blame on the entire German military leadership, not singling out Hitler, but the entire military leadership overextended their supply lines, refused to abort the operation in time when there was still an operation, when there was still time to withdraw to secure supply lines, but stubbornly tried to take too many objectives, and the Wehrmacht culminated, and that was a collective delusion that the entire military leadership had, himself included. So we do see a different level of analysis and honesty in the analysis, which again makes Bulk a more interesting sort of character to read about and to study, because he's quite frank about his own shortcomings and the other shortcomings of his um, of his um, colleagues. It doesn't go into this 1950s German sort of it's all that Austrian corporal's fault. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something um, that uh, anyone can appreciate about Bulk's uh, interpretation of the events of the war. Um, to uh, sort of change gears here again, um, I think, so in the beginning of the book, he's a, in the French campaign, is he a battalion or, or a regimental commander? He's a, he's a colonel and a regimental commander in France. Okay, so he's a colonel, regimental commander. And as the book progresses, as the war progresses, he moves up in the ranks. And he's obviously very suited to uh, that level of command, the regiment to division size. But would you say there was a change in his leadership style or if a change in the effectiveness of his leadership style as he moved up to more the operational level? Absolutely. So Balk had an uncanny ability to every promotion and every time he's commanding a larger force just to step back a little bit. So as a regimental commander in France, he's very much at the, at the forward edge as much as he possibly can. That's the same when he's a regimental commander in Greece, very much at the forefront then in Russia, where he's now a general with a division, he still is relatively forward by division command standards, but he's still a little bit more back. He's a little bit more back looking at the larger picture rather than focusing on one small tactical action, and he's racing around different forward points, not simply staying at one forward point. So he's a little bit more back than normal, spends comes back to his divisional headquarters a bit more. Sometimes he sends his chief of staff forward and he stays at his headquarters a bit more. So he understood that he couldn't command a division the same way he commands a regiment. And then you see this trend again when he's now a corps commander, later an army group commander, later an army group commander. At each instance, he's just a little bit back, a little bit more um, detached, still as far forward as possible in respect to what he is commanding, but he understands the need to step back and that the higher up you are, you need to understand the bigger picture of what is going on and not get distracted by a tactical action at the expense of the bigger picture. So we can see that Bulk successfully transitions between commands for that reason, whereas someone like Rommel didn't. So in, in France, Rommel commanding the 7th Panzer Division was very much like Bolt commanding the 11th Panzer Division, very much at the front, urging the soldiers on and in the thick of it, which is fine for that level of command. But when Rommel is commanding a corps and later an army in North Africa, he's obsessed with some tactical issue at some narrow part of the front and 
loses operational cohesion, um, loses touch with his own headquarters, and loses the bigger picture of what's going on because he doesn't allow himself or force himself to step back and to see the bigger picture. But with Bolk, you can see a general trend towards just knowing the right level of detachment from the front to see the bigger picture, but not too far back that you were totally removed from the front either. Right, right. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't upset too many of the Ramalites out there with that uh, comment. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's definitely something that uh, is to be said for Bulk, that he was able to make that transition because so many of the great captains of history were are great tacticians, but then when they get promoted up to higher levels of command, I mean, this is especially true as well of the uh, Confederate generals of the American Civil War that were great brigadiers but just had no idea how to command an army. I mean, it's very rare that someone's able to do both. That is that is correct, and it's interesting. Um, there's a lot of military forums where bulk is often discussed, and some of the debates in, in these forums re- revolve around was bulk promoted beyond his competence. So by the time in the war he was commanding corps, armies, and army groups, you know the war was irredeemably lost, and these were battles that he normally did not win. So that uh, some a lot of the debates in those kind of military foremans with World War II enthusiasts was, you know, was Bolt promoted beyond his capability or was, by the time he got those higher levels, the war was irredeemably lost and no matter how good he was, those battles were not going to be won. So there's um, an interesting way of interpreting it. So certainly by the time he was higher level leadership, um, you know, 1943, 44, 45, um, the odds he was facing against were overwhelming well and then i i don't think you cover this as much in the book but uh especially in the battle of uh, budapest he was able to pull off something of a, of a miracle there was he not yeah he certainly in those instances achieved some fleeting tactical successes that were certainly beyond what what was expected or or what you would expect and was able to sort of hold the front quite strongly but never for all time so no I, I do think he was effective as a higher level commander but by that time the odds were simply too great that uh, it was beyond the means of one talented commander to really change the entire situation on the front but we do see him as an army group commander in alsace lorraine in france in command of army group g which was effectively, his mission was to hold the American and the French advance in the Alsace-Lorraine region to draw them in and fix them through elastic defense with an incredibly ragtag assortment of odd capabilities, whatever the Germans could throw together to set the conditions for the Battle of the Bulge. So in this, Bulge actually quite succeeded at a very high level of command successfully doing a fighting retreat to draw the Allies into this area, to distract the Allies with whatever small capabilities could be spared in order for the Germans to concentrate force in the Ardennes for the Battle of the Bulge. So as commander of Army Group G, he very much achieved his operational and strategic objectives. Battle of the Bulge went ahead and failed of its own accord. But Bolt, as an army, as um, army group commander, completely achieved the mission he was assigned. 
Right. And regardless, Germany was going to lose the war by 1944, if not earlier. But I mean, the fact that he was able to pull off tactical victories despite operational failures and then and then, honestly, just being able to get his troops into Bavaria to surrender the Americans was probably uh, <laughs> a success, something of a success on its own. And that is, yeah, that's another interesting story. So, so Bulk's army, after retreating from Hungary, naturally wanted to surrender to the Americans rather than the Soviets. Um, however, the Allies had an agreement that German forces were to surrender to whoever they were fighting at the time. So in order for that to happen, Bolk marched his army from Hungary to the American lines in Austria and had to make contact with the American headquarters to arrange the surrender of their forces. But in order for the Americans not to break their agreement with the Russians, actually had to stage a small sort of skirmish to say that we are engaged the German army here, therefore the German army can surrender to us and not the Russians, and the Americans were happy to arrange a kind of skirmish just for show. <laughs> that's really that's really interesting. Um, so I guess that leads us sort of into what what Bulk's legacy is. Um, and it, as with all of the great military leaders in, in regimes like that of Nazi Germany, you do have to discuss or confront in some way what their relationship was with the regime. So how, how would you describe Volk's relationship with Hitler and with Nazism as a whole? So with Hitler, as on a personal level, he got on quite well. Um, Hitler liked him and, and it kind of went both ways. And when Bob was talking about the lack of interference from Hitler and how he had free reign to conduct operations as he saw fit, that's partially explained by the fact that Hitler had confidence in him as a leader. So they certainly got on well on a sort of man-to-man level. In terms of the politics of the regime, certainly Bog was an, had nationalistic German leanings, but were not fully Nazified. You don't get a sense of him being a racist or an anti-Semitic. He um, discusses Nazi crimes in his memoirs. The extent to which he knew what was happening or didn't know what was happening is potentially glossed over. I'll never really know precisely how much he knew during the war, but certainly after the war, he struggled to reconcile his memories of Hitler which were rather fond because they got on with full knowledge of how awful the regime was. So in the end, he um, certainly condemns the politics of Nazism and the barbarism of all that. But he was also torn. Um, He was very close friends with Stauffenberg. Both Bulk and Stauffenberg were these guys that were really into history. They got along very well. They had a lot of discussions about all that. And there was one incident where... Stauffenberg is probing him for, retrospectively, um, perhaps inviting him into the German resistance, and Bulk cuts him off and says, you know, for better or for worse, you know, we're tied to Hitler, and then Stauffenberg backs off and takes that cue. But after the war, Bulk spoke very fondly of Stauffenberg and, and, and understands that what he did was ethically the right thing to do that he didn't see it at the time. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, but Stauffenberg was part of the plot against Hitler's life, correct? Correct. So obviously he was all his all of his tactical and victories and heroism contributed to and really the the evil that was perpetrated by the Nazi state. But I do think on the other hand, as historians or people who study military history and tactics and want to use the lessons of the past to inform how we fight today and in the future, you do have to take someone like Balk and recognize that for, you know, whatever purpose he served, he was a brilliant commander. Um, that is absolutely correct. So um, if we had to talk about legacy, the fact that he was so skilled in military terms, in terms of the conduct of operations as a general, as a commander, as well as a military thinker, thinking of the battle group, having these combined arms, flexible responses, being very innovative. Um, his legacy is strong through that and also through his later relationship with the U.S. military. So as previously mentioned, um, after the Vietnam War, the American military was in its downward spiral. It was the lowest point of its, of its time. It was when soldiers had been bragging officers in Vietnam. It's when um, there were huge racial tensions. There was huge drug issues. So 1975 was a terrible time for the United States military out of this horrible war. And from there, you also had a strong a strong desire to rebuild the army, where you had excellent, excellent generals such as General Depew and General Starry, who very much turned that around and rebuilt the American army into what it is today. And Bob became a consultant to help them in this process. So Bob's contribution as a consultant at symposiums, at conferences, through interviews, through through war games in the 70s and the 80s, all his military lessons on mission tactics, on combined arm flexibility, on task groups, got fed into the American doctrine, into what then became the the air-land battle. His campaigns were taught at American Staff College, and all that contributed into the rebuilding of the American army that then was able to fight incredibly well in the Gulf War not very long after. Right, and you can definitely still see his influence on uh, U.S. military doctrine to this day. I mean, his the idea of combined arms and task forces created from combined arms for a particular mission is, is baked into our doctrine. Um, the idea of mission command that he developed where leadership needs to be at that decisive point. I mean, we have main headquarters, but we also have tactical command posts that are made just for the express purpose of getting a commander as close to the decisive point as possible. And absolutely, and by by influencing the American military in that way, which is the Western superpower, that influence then spreads to the other Western militaries, Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Western Europe. So, so Bulk really, um, what he contributed to American doctrine um, eventually became simply Western military doctrine. Moving away from sort of the substance, I am actually curious uh, 
about how you amassed your primary sources, especially all the photos, which say in the caption they uh, are from the author's personal collection. Ah, happily. So I was very fortunate to have primary sources to write this book. So, so Bulk did write his memoir quite late in life, and for that his memoir is Ordering Chaos, is a collection of post-war reflection and extracts of the journal he wrote at the time. So you can you can clearly see in his memoirs what is a secondary reflection and what is a primary. He is just printing his extracts from his journal. So there was quite a lot of primary source information in his memoirs. Um, and and um, through the Australian archives, I was able to get the um, Panzer diary, war diaries of containing Bob's action reports as well as the primary sources of the Australian and New Zealand commanders. So for the Greek campaign, I was able to get the primary sources on both sides. And for France and Russia, there's enough secondary sources out there that have contains extracts of the key primary sources to get both sides of the battle. But in also the extensive interviews Bulk did with the US military in the 70s and the 80s has a lot of post-war reflection on all those aspects of his command. So we have another record of what Bulk was thinking at different times with the benefit of hindsight, of course. And and in terms of photographs, um, very much indebted to um, excellent military forums on the internet where, where Bulk is a kind of cult figure. And a lot of people have found photos of him and his and his battles who knows where, that are kind enough to to post them on forums um, that are now just open source for everybody to use. Okay. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. I'd like to thank Mr. Stephen Robinson for participating and his publisher for contacting me for this interview. The book is Panzer Commander Hermann Bulk, Germany's Master Tactician, from Exile Publishing, available for purchase in August 2019. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.